0: Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if I might have your attention for a moment, it's a great honor and a pleasure to open the Mershon Center's uh, uh, lunchtime speaker series for the academic year 2008-2009, an even greater pleasure and honor that we're welcoming back one of our own. Mary Ellen O'Connell, as almost everybody here knows, uh, was at the Law Law School and also a Mershon Associate for many years. She currently holds the Robert and Marion Short Chair in Law and is a fellow of the Crutch Institute for Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Before that, she taught at the uh, George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies in Germany, and then came to OSU, where she was a fellow of the Mershon Center for the Study of International Security. She has a BA in history, <laughs> something she kept very quiet while she was here, uh, from Northwestern, and an MS, a Master of Science in International Relations from the London School of Economics, and then a LLB in International Law from Cambridge, it's Cambridge, England, and a JD from Columbia. Published widely on international law, gives evidence to Congress, and her specialty is the Law on the Use of Force and the Peaceful Settlement of Disputes. Her latest book, which I think I see lurking here, The Power and Purpose of International Law, is available on Amazon.com, and indeed from Barnes & Noble, published only six weeks ago. Uh, just a word about the format. It's now nearly quarter past 12. Mary Ellen will speak. We'll then have a Q&A, and we're going to wrap up a little before half past one, uh, uh, so that those of you with a half past one class can make it. Um, and I will have to stop at that point. So over to Mary Allen. Thank you very much for coming. Welcome home.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jeffrey. Well, it, it is really a pleasure to be back and see so many friends and meet uh, new friends. I've, I always tell people about the Mershon Center, such a great place at Ohio State, where I think they really have um, – Uh, developed the art of the interdisciplinary um, study, an interdisciplinary center, where because people here are all focused on the same problem, the problem of war, I think it really does work here. And, of course, it also helps to have a very effective leader like Rick Herman. Um, My topic today is the problem of war, and more precisely what I see as the growing acceptance of the use of force to advance causes rather than something reserved for exigent situations of dire necessity. Certain people who were or probably would have been aligned with the anti-war movement of the 1960s are now, I'm suggesting to you, promoting the use of military force to advance humanitarian causes, joining the so-called realists and neoconservatives and confronting us with a new militarism. This new militarism runs counter to current international law. It risks undermining that law and what it can accomplish through repressing war and advancing the law of human rights. As a practical matter, using force has proven to be counterproductive in either protecting lives or advancing security. The eminent British historian Michael Howard reminds us in his long essay, The Invention of Peace, that the norm of peace, which we enshrined in the United Nations Charter, is a relatively new one. Howard says, Peace as an international order in which war plays no part had been a common enough aspiration for visionaries throughout history, but it has been regarded by political leaders as a practicable or indeed a desirable goal, only during the past 200 years. In fact, only 100 years ago, states came together for the first time to take binding legal steps to outlaw war through a multilateral treaty, the Hague Peace Convention of 1907. The delegates only managed to outlaw one kind of war, military force, to collect contract debts. Now, that achievement probably doesn't sound like very much today, but it was a legally binding commitment to limit the right of a sovereign, to resort to what was known then and probably still is among some sovereigns as the sovereign prerogative, the right to wage war. It took the horror of World War I to move the world to the next conceptual breakthrough the assa- with the assassination of Austro-Hungaria, uh, the Austro Hungarian Empire's heir to the throne by a secret pro Serbian nationalist group, the war was triggered. The, that assassination really seemed to have been the very sort of conflict that the Hague Conventions, with their methods for a peaceful settlement of disputes, their hesitation before going to war, should have helped to resolve and to have prevented war. Instead, A war involving most of Europe, the United States, and colonies around the world erupted. In shock over the senseless loss of life and devastation, statesmen agreed in the covenant of the League of Nations to real limitations on the right to resort to force. Additionally, they agreed on collective action to enforce these limits and to the creation of a new international court to resolve disputes. Although the League had been the brainchild of the U.S. President, Woodrow Wilson, America did not join. But the United States did want to be part of the legal solution to war. And we joined with France to promote the 1928 Kellogg-Briand Pact, which in simple, straightforward, legally binding language, outlawed war as an instrument of national policy. Tragically, the the PAC's norms had not reached the point of effectiveness where they could restrain Germany from using force to press its own claim for superiority and its natural right to be the dominant power in Europe. Germany seized its neighbors, then invaded Poland in 1939. And Japan's leaders had a similar view, a similar conviction of their superiority and a similar determination to rule over or even eliminate peoples they considered to be inferior. So it was World War II that finally moved humanity and the United States into taking the next steps toward the outlawing of the use of force. German and Japanese leaders, don't forget, were tried for crimes against the peace at Nuremberg and Tokyo, not just crimes against humanity the German Foreign Minister Joachim von Ribbentrop was indicted in part for having prepared the legal argument for invading Norway, Denmark and the Low Countries. As the war was ending, in addition to citing the Kellogg-Briand Pact at the Nuremberg Tribunal, the Allies also incorporated those same crimes against the peace in the United Nations Charter. The charter, and we'll see if we can put this language up on this uh, document camera. The charters, the heart of the charter, the heart of the UN charter is this, this language here in Article 2, Paragraph 4. All members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state, or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. Now that language, despite some of the uh, unfortunate additional phrases or unnecessary phrases, was intended to be a general prohibition on the use of force, with only two exceptions. The most famous exception, I think really well known to most of you here is the right of self-defense. In Article 51, the Charter says that nothing in the present Charter shall inherit inherit the inherent right of self-defense, but this is the critical language often overlooked, if an armed attack occurs against a member of the United Nations until the Security Council takes effective measures. Article 51 permits individual and collective self-defense if an armed attack occurs. A U.S. delegate at the 1945 San Francisco Conference to draft the Charter made it very clear in his comments that the intentions of the authors of the Charter were to state in the broadest terms an absolute, all-inclusive prohibition on force. The United Nations Charter permits unilateral self-defense only in cases where the objective evidence of an armed attack or an action amounting to an armed attack is there. For other less tangible or immediate threats, the party must bring the concerns to the Security Council. The Security Council also has the right, in Article 39 and 41, to authorize the use of force in cases of threats to the peace, breaches of the peace, or acts of aggression. The Council, however, also has another obligation, which is also not widely discussed but i think really should be the council is a body under general international law and in addition to the charter text there are principles of gen- or general principles and principles of customary international law that bind how the security council acts and when and how it authorizes the use of force in particular the council must respect the principles of necessity and proportionality so that if the council authorizes a use of force, it has to be sure that that use of force will have some likely prospect of success and really be um, in a situation where it is needed. And of course, proportionality, any use of force has to have a prospect of accomplishing the military objective that will not outweigh the cost in human lives and destruction. Since the charter was drafted, we've had numerous decisions of the International Court of Justice restating these very principles, many involving the United States, such as the Nicaragua case, but also the oil platforms case with Iran, and most recently, Congo's case with Uganda. All of these Security Council resolutions, General Assembly resolutions, and official statements of governments have confirmed and reconfirmed the binding nature of the United Nations Charter and general rules of international law. Indeed, the international community has repeatedly affirmed its support for this regime of peace and the prohibition on the use of force. Most recently, and most significantly, at the United Nations in September 2005, the UN World Summit outcome document included these passages which reconfirm the words of the Charter um, reiterating the importance of promoting and strengthening multilateral processes, processes and strictly abiding by the Charter and the principles of international law, as well as finding that the provisions of the Charter are sufficient to address the full range of threats to international peace and security. They reaffirm the authority of the Security Council to mandate course of action. They stress the importance of acting in accordance with the purposes and principles of the UN Charter. The chief principle of the UN Charter is to remove the scourge of war from the international community. Many, especially in the U.S. today, are quick to dismiss the UN Charter and the United Nations in general as failures. They overlook that the Charter is in fact responsible for the next major breakthrough in the development of a peace order. The Charter has effectively created a norm against conquest. The use of force to acquire another sovereign state, a member of the UN, is today considered beyond the pale. It has not been done successfully since the adoption of the Charter. You all know the attempt by Saddam Hussein to conquer Kuwait, to remove it as an independent state member of the United Nations. That action was repulsed by almost the entire international community um, quite successfully, and the norm against conquest was reconfirmed and enforced. And I actually thought after that war, after that successful war when President Bush the father declared that we were entering a new world order under the rule of law, that it would be a time in which we would expand the effectiveness of the charter, really uh, begin to repress more uses of military force and the idea that military force could be a useful tool of national policy we might have expected just such an advancement after 1991. The Cold War was over, and along with it, the false claims of justified force that had been used throughout that era. Instead, however, the idea of using force for more purposes, not fewer, grew in popularity. Indeed, some human rights advocates began to take up the cause to say that if we really care about human rights, we have to use military force to show that seriousness. This is when that phrase, the human rights hawk, was coined. But that idea of using military force for human rights, known probably most commonly as humanitarian intervention, was an old idea that had been introduced into international legal discourse by Richard Lillick, in the 1970s at the University of Virginia. It had really been resisted and international lawyers had condemned it as a violation of the Charter and as opening the floodgates to more exceptions to the prohibition on the use of force. And indeed, until the Kosovo conflict in 1999, states did not justify uses of force as humanitarian interventions. You just don't find them. People will talk about uh, Tanzania's intervention in Uganda. That was based on self-defense. The same with India and its neighbors. Um, these were just, we just don't have cases where states said that they were using force for humanitarian reasons. Rather, they took the position time and again that force could not be used for humanitarian reasons except through the collective decision-making um, Uh, instrument of the Security Council. Then, following the bombing of Yugoslavia over mistreatment of Kosovo's Albanian population in 1999, the United Kingdom spoke officially in terms of aiding in the development of a doctrine of humanitarian intervention. Soon after, the Canadian government founded the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty to study the idea And this concept, this doctrine of the responsibility to protect, or R2P, was born. Much of the report of the IISS under the leadership of Gareth Evans of Australia is actually quite consistent with the UN Charter and with international law. It really offers almost nothing new but to reconfirm that human rights are a matter of international interest, etc. But it did include this very unfortunate language. And this is new. If the Security Council rejects a proposal or fails to deal with it in a reasonable time, there's this first reference to uniting for peace. More worrying is to action within an area of jurisdiction by a regional or sub regional organization under Chapter 7 of the Charter, or Chapter 8, subject to their seeking subsequent authorization. So it says that. Uh, a group like NATO could use force um, and then later ask the Security Council, as opposed to the plain language of Chapter 8, which says such authorization has to come before the use of military force. Had that language actually been the rule of law in 1999 during the bombing of Kosovo, it might have provided a legal basis for the use of force there. But in actual fact, that language speaks of atrocities in the report. And if you'll recall, there were human rights monitors in place in Kosovo in December and January, and there were not human rights atrocities occurring at the time that NATO decided, made its decision to start bombing. The human rights monitors were pulled out of Kosovo at the end of January when reports of a massacre at Racek began to surface. It was stated by the U.S. representative on the scene that 40 women and children had been killed in that village. And that's when Madeline Albright said enough and made her ultimatum to uh, Slobodan Milosevic. We have found out subsequently in an official documents that the United States submitted in the trial of, of Milosevic that there were no women and no children among the dead, two women, I'm sorry, there were two women, all the rest were men of fighting age from 18 to early 60s and there was evidence that the bodies had been moved from another location um, and placed there. But it was on this basis that that NATO decided to use force its 70 plus days of bombing over um, Kosovo and that first picture that was um, on the screen is from the Kosovo conflict. Some 250 um, civilians were thought to have died in the fighting in the year before NATO started bombing. People who died, either Serbs or Albanians, in the fighting um, being perpetrated by the Kosovo Liberation Army, Serb militias, and Serb regular forces. About 250 innocent civilians. The result of NATO's Um, 70 plus days of bombing agreed by pro-NATO sources is that some 500 innocent Serb civilians, children, women were killed um, through the bombing. And of course many hundreds more were uh, seriously wounded. Um, And there was great, great destruction of course throughout, um, throughout the region. Nevertheless, a great deal of attention was paid to R2P and this concept that using force um, in serious situations of human rights violations was a good idea. For a while, there was a slowing of that support for military force to re-engineer social situations, political situations, following the U.S. invasion of Iraq. In the... uh, uh, realization of the death, destruction, suffering caused by war, there was a new anti-war sentiment that went out throughout the world. And the interest in war for humanitarian purpose did seem to wane. The UN Secretary General's high-level panel on United Nations reform, making its report in 2004, and the Secretary General's own report in September 2005, both included references to R2P, but also reaffirmed the prohibition on the use of force without Security Council authorization. And of course, the restatement of the charter is reflected even more emphatically in the 2005 World Summit outcome document that I already showed you. Nevertheless, there is a persistent view that the unauthorized use of force in pursuance of humanitarian goals is legitimate. Indeed, a view has emerged that force for a variety of goals, imposing democracy, eliminating weapons of mass destruction, and simply to punish evildoers, is now legitimate. A prominent proponent of these views, the human rights scholar Michael Ignatieff, actually argued in favor of the Iraq War on humanitarian grounds. But his argument relies on hypotheticals and not actual cases. He has no cases where actual war or humanitarian intervention, the use of military force, created a situation that was better for human rights afterwards than before. Rather, he speculates entirely on what might have been achieved in cases where war was not used. It's counterfactual entirely. He has no examples of post-1945 successful interventions for humanitarian purposes. Ignatius fails to cite the negative impact and the long-term consequences of bombing Yugoslavia or the long, but bloody wars that followed ECOWAS interventions in Liberia in 1990 and Sierra Leone in 1991. He rather focuses on what might have been gained by removing Saddam Hussein, He never looks at the actual cost of removing him, at whether the Iraqis would not have been better off removing him themselves, or at the impact on the rule of law itself when the world superpower rides roughshod over the UN Charter. Ignatieff writes in the abstract about how war can be the lesser of two evils, but his calculation fails to include the true cost of war. The people who drafted the UN Charter had a much clearer understanding of the nature of war and what it can accomplish and what it cannot. The Charter prohibition on humanitarian intervention is built on well-considered normative and pragmatic underpinnings. For that reason, it has withstood until now arguments in favor of such intervention. Some proponents of humanitarian intervention believe that the opponents are more concerned that states will abuse the right. And that's why we resist bringing this into the law. They believe that countries will claim to use force for humanitarian reasons when the real purpose is national interest. Abuse is a problem. There are, in fact, no examples of pure altruistic humanitarian intervention. But such abuse would not necessarily be a problem if intervention could nevertheless accomplish more good than harm. Empirically, that simply has not been the case. The military consistently advise political leaders that using military force to protect human rights is extremely difficult. The results in Kosovo bear out that advice, as do so many other examples. The Soviet Union, for example, tried to impose a better form of government on Afghanistan throughout the 1980s, Marxism, Leninism, they failed utterly trying for 10 years. Even cases where humanitarian intervention was authorized by the Security Council but did not follow classical peacekeeping, such as in Haiti, Bosnia, and the Congo, we've seen only failure. The cases show that military intervention for humanitarian purposes on balance has accomplished more harm than good. This fact rarely comes up in discussions of humanitarian intervention. Rather, the proponents continue to cite Srebrenica and Rwanda. The argument is that if the Western countries had used military force while the killing in those places was going on, that killing could have been stopped this argument fails to acknowledge that Western peacekeepers were present in both places at the time the killing was going on. In both Bosnia and Rwanda, lightly armed UN peacekeepers were present. They had mandates to do more than they could. Their presence gave people a false sense of security. If the peacekeepers had not been there, people may well have done more to protect themselves. In Srebrenica, Bosnians would not have remained in the vicinity of Serb militias if the UN had not promised to protect them. In Rwanda, Tutsis may not have trusted their Hutu neighbors while the Tutsi rebel force was advancing on the country, but for the presence of blue helmets. The blue helmets pulled out, did not stay to defend, More troops were not sent, and somehow out of that set of facts, this myth has grown up that there would have been a violation of the UN Charter to send troops to Rwanda. That was simply not the case. There was a Security Council resolution in place. Any country that wanted to send troops could have done so. The United States could easily have sent troops. I mean, it could have authorized the sending of troops. It would have been difficult, I understand, logistically to get lots of troops into place in good time. But the presence of military forces in these situations, situations that lack the conditions for classical peacekeeping, seem to have been a factor in the tragedies. Why should we expect that sending inadequate forces in the wrong conditions into future humanitarian crises will have better outcomes? When the poor record of military force to protect human rights is reviewed, some try to counter it by arguing that states have simply failed to commit enough resources. Committing resources is surely part of the problem, but states are unlikely ever to commit the kind of resources that these situations call for. Massive amounts of troops, money, etc. for successful humanitarian intervention in complex multifaction conflicts over major land masses. This factor weighs against changing the law to permit humanitarian intervention. And even if massive resources are committed, resources alone cannot overcome the need for communities to develop their own leadership. Leaders who are identified with the community they will lead and not with the foreign power imposing him on the country. The United States has committed billions of dollars and massive numbers of troops in Iraq, and yet violence, chaos, and ethnic cleansing continue as we speak. James Meek reported in the New York Daily News the following information um, in late 2007 about the Democratic Party's presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. Clinton's wise men are well-known for having been gun-ho about the invasion of Iraq, but highly critical of Bush's bungled occupation. Most, like Sandy Berger and Richard Holbrook, were top national security aides to her husband, Bill Clinton. Clinton advisor Lee Feinstein has argued that controversial doctrine of preemptive war, attacking an enemy before it attacks the U.S., does not go far enough. Feinstein, an, a former Defense and State Department official, supported ousting Saddam in 2003 and believed Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Since then... He has championed the concept of a duty to prevent which justifies preemptive strikes. He said that the US should try to build coalition but that it cannot attack but that it can it may attack even if it doesn't have ally support and he makes no mention of course of international law. But his view could not be more at odds with the charter or with the facts. And of course this view that military force is useful for some purposes, that we should return to it in violation of the Charter, was only um, exacerbated, was underscored, I suppose is the right word, when Hillary Clinton said the United States would use military force and obliterate Iran if it attacked Israel. The U.S. and Ethiopia intervened in Somalia in early 2007. Within six months, almost 6,000 people were dead. The U.S. fired on individuals fleeing to Kenya from helicopter gunships. And also in 2007, Israel sent eight fighter jets to bomb Syria. And again, there was virtually no protest, not even by Syria. In 1981, when Israel had bombed Iraq, the entire Security Council condemned in a unanimous resolution that action, including President Reagan's ambassador to the United Nations, Jean Kirkpatrick who said it was not a necessary or lawful action. But during the Burma crisis this past summer, a prominent former Canadian ambassador to the United Nations and leading proponent of R2P said that Burma should be invaded to force aid into hard-hit regions. And Ramesh Thakur, in the same debate, who was a member of the IISS group that wrote R2P, argued against him, saying, no, we should not invade Burma, we should invade Zimbabwe. This past summer, Georgia's president sent troops into South Ossetia in violation of treaties that, he had, that his country had signed in the early 90s. And, of course, the Russians responded with disproportionate force, citing the example of Kosovo and NATO's use of force there. Just a few more examples of the new militarism, this new uh, thinking even by the left that using military force is appropriate despite the cases and despite the law. Gary Bass of Princeton (laughs) has a new book out, Extolling Humanitarian Intervention, that's being favorably reviewed throughout the liberal press. And last night, for those of you who watched the vice presidential debates, you heard Joe Biden speak with great pride about being a pro-interventionist. These are just a few indications that we are facing a new militarism, a new acceptance of the use of force, and rejection of the norm of peace. Unfortunately, R2P may have added to this new acceptability of war. Another of the R2P authors, Gareth Evans, has striven to clarify that the use of force must have Security Council authorization. He has backed off the original report, and he and Ramesh Thakur have tried to condemn the use of force in Iraq, and to argue that it is not an example of R2P. But ideas are powerful, and the original IISS report proposing unauthorized war persists as the assumed core of R2P. It's the one thing in the R2P report that does call for a concrete change to international law. States already had the right and perhaps even the duty to use non-lethal means to promote human rights. In conclusion, I just have to say again and again since 1991, we have seen armed conflict connected with the gravest human rights abuse. Peace, I suggest to you, is the necessary conditioning, the necessary condition for the flourishing of all rights. The world needs to turn back to building a norm of peace and toward creating once again a general norm of nonviolence. This can be achieved by advocating that the responsibility to protect human rights includes the obligation to protect the human right to peace, especially by advocating strict compliance with the UN Charter's prohibition on war. As reconfirmed in New York in two thousand and five, I would suggest to you that this idea of intervention and in violation of international law be placed on the dust heap of other failed neocon policies. Thank you and this this great. Anyway, I'd love to. I'm, I'm I'm sure that I've provoked a few of you, so I, I would love to hear. Darfur is not a legal problem. It's again, it's 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 like the Rwanda case earlier. It's a problem of political will, Um, although it's 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 also a pragmatic problem. There's plenty of legal support. We we now have Security Council resolutions for the hybrid force. We're having two problems. We're having problems of countries actually um, agreeing to send troops. The same problem in Rwanda. This is not a legal problem in Darfur. But I would suggest to you that it, it, it does bear, and I, I, I think governments are being, having learned these lessons, even though it doesn't seem to be out in, in, in some of the pro-humanitarian intervention community, but governments understand what risk they're placing their forces at if they go into a situation like Darfur where there is no real peace to keep. So... Um, I think they are waiting for a more stable situation where they can actually follow much more classical peacekeeping doctrine. What they're looking for is some robust negotiation of a ceasefire, more cooperation from Khartoum, and then we'll see governments committing forces. And I actually think that that's what what the cases teach. The the 17 classical peacekeeping forces that went out um, prior to 1991... Are general, genuinely and generally cases of success that works. Sending peacekeepers into active, hot, fighting situations has not worked, and that's the concern I think of governments with regard to Darfur right now. It's a very people want something to be done. They want something to be done quickly, but at least in in international law, when you've got to take into account principles of necessity and proportionality. You don't send people into fight if that fighting will do more harm than good. You have to have a colorable chance of success. And for those of you who find that that sounds familiar to the old just war doctrine, it's of course related on a, on a philosophical and normative basis. But we don't have, I think, the conditions for a successful use of peacekeepers in Sudan right now. And I think that that's uh, of great concern. And what I would recommend Is that we make a much more concerted effort at mediation than has there was some success when the uh, the group of wise men went the elders um, but we don't seem to be seeing follow-up on that and we seem to have lost to some extent the art of really great negotiation although uh, in mediation although Kofi Annan of course had success in Kenya and um, and and Zimbabwe seems to have had a much uh, better resolution but that's what I would suggest, Margaret that we recover the art of diplomacy of negotiation and we return to classical peacekeeping doctrine and use military force that way unless it's a clear violation of understood uh, uh, a clear self-defense situation military, the major armies are good at we do have success as we know from the Kuwait liberation of one military force pushing another one across an internationally recognized boundary. That they do well at. Otherwise peacekeeping in the classical sense. Peter. I
2: just two back questions. Yes. So one is can you say more about why you think um possible we get things worse way right, and better? And second, what what's the deal with the bombing in Syria? I've seen yeah. some
1: Well, uh, in Kosovo, m- my study of the facts indicate that the human rights monitors uh, who had gone in in December of 1998 under an agreement brokered by Richard Holbrook and Milosevic were working, even though, for reasons I've never been able to clarify, uh, the United States never sent its contingent of peacekeepers. The agreement was for 2,000 human rights monitors, And only 1,400 went. We were supposed to send some 600, and we never did. Maybe because of the jealousy or the infighting between Madeleine Albright and Richard Holbrooke, she didn't seem to ever be very supportive of that agreement. It's an unfortunate thing. Of course, there were also economic sanctions in place. There were other pressures being brought to bear. I've interviewed um, Swiss monitors who were there and when the Rachak event happened, they were sure they were going to be pulled out just as a sign of pressure on Milosevic, and then they were going to go right back in in three days because they were so successful. And instead, they were pulled out entirely. The ultimatum was made to Milosevic that either he'd give up, kosovo pull out his troops, or the bombing would start, and given the ties between Kosovo and uh, Serbia, he didn't do that, wouldn't do it and the bombing began. Then, um, of course, 20,000 people died in the entire conflict, of which even NATO has admitted 500 were innocent Serb civilians. That Those kinds of numbers, that, that makes no sense to me if you're trying to do something humanitarian, to kill so many people. Um, there's an, uh, Ian Brownlee, the great professor of international law at Oxford, wrote in a critique of Lilic's work on calling for humanitarian intervention, he just raised the question, well, well, how many people do you kill to save the human rights of others? And this is the problematic calculation in humanitarian intervention. And then after uh, the bombing stopped, there was this bloodletting where Albanians were killing Serbs. There was, of course, Serbs killing Albanians as well. But even uh, several years later, 14 French peacekeepers were killed in rioting by um, Kosovo Albanians. It's it's been one uh, set of tragedies after another, and I don't see that the bombing has helped. We're in a very unstable situation there now. Until uh, Kosovo is admitted to the United Nations, it will have questionable status as a sovereign state. It will never get into the UN because China and Russia can veto its membership. Um, And so it will remain in this uh, unstable and not happy situation. So I can't see how we can call that a success, um, certainly compared to what the situation was on the eve of the bombing. As for the um, September 6, 2007 bombing by Israel of Syria, the initial uh, reports were, um, of course, neither country has said anything much official about this really strange situation. I think because the Syrians were involved in some Uh, activity that they don't want to defend and so they just stay quiet about it. Um, I assume that no people were killed or they would have complained about that. I think the best intelligence now and probably others here can add in is that it was a chemical weapons site and not a nuclear weapons site and that they were getting assistance from the um, North Koreans but it was not probably uh, nuclear. There doesn't seem to be evidence of that, but that they were perhaps developing a chemical weapons. Storage site, production site, not well known. But plainly, this is the kind, exactly the kind of problem that Israel should have brought to the Security Council and had an airing of it. Um, and there are uh, on-site inspections under the Chemical Weapons Convention. Um, there were different things that the Security Council could have ordered Um, that I think would have been a much better outcome for Israel itself because Israel, once again, is considered to be a country willing to use military force, not willing to use the peaceful methods of dispute resolution, and it it continues to hurt its proposition of ever having a peaceful two-state solution in the region.
3: Yes.
4: In the 1970s and 80s, there were four... Hotspots in Asia. One was the independence of Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Yes. If it would not have been for India, Pakistan would have committed with more atrocities there. Yes. So the international community did not move. It was India which took care of that. Another one was in the 1980s, the Palpat genocide in Cambodia. Uh, if the international, it would not have been for Chinese, probably it would have continued. I do not know for how long. The international, you mentioned Afghanistan was the third one. And also, something happened with Saddam Hussein in, right after, at the end of the Iran-Iraq War, uh, in 1978, 1987, he killed 6,000 people in Halabja and gassed them, and they he did. The international community did not move, neither the United Nations nor other. But in the case of Bosnia, it happened, and because it was too close to home, or in the case of Grenada, Panama that it did not happen uh, in enough? What, what were the reasons that those uh, almost uh, uh, the
1: international community was impotent, but in some other cases they took some action? Well, um, Bosnia is post-Cold War, and the other incidents are pre-Cold War, and of course that context is worth remembering. Um, I do want to point out A lot of people point to Bangladesh and India's intervention as a humanitarian intervention. India does not say that that's what it was. They say that they were securing their border, that there was so much violence that was implicated at cross-border, and there were cross-border raids, and there have been continuing to be clashes across that border, and that that's why they intervened. The same with Vietnam's intervention in Cambodia. Of course, it was not, uh, uh, again, they said that their purpose was to um, uh, to stop cross-border raids and other violence across the border, and there was a self-defensive action. But then Vietnam uh, put their own puppet in power, and there, it, even if they had a right, which I think they did, to do proportionate, low-level defensive action along their border, they had no right to change the government in, and then to stay in occupation for all the years that they did. So um, they neither claimed it, nor can, I think, can we conclude I think that that was a... A good outcome, Um, you know. And Saddam Hussein using uh, chemical weapons—we, how do you respond to that? I mean, how do? What's so important is that these things be prevented in the future. The fact that Saddam Hussein did not understand this fundamental norm against using chemical weapons means that the international community has to do more to build up respect for these human rights and it doesn't come necessarily from using force in violation of the very international law that's saying these human rights are binding. If you undermine such basic treaties as the charter, but then hold up another set of treaties and say, but these are perfectly fine to obey, you see the problem. And so there there were plenty of ways to respond to Saddam Hussein without using military force, Um, and and we have successfully resolved other serious situations of human rights conflicts. We now have the International Criminal Court. That, and, and, there are, and of course, we could have always tried Saddam Hussein in an ad hoc criminal court if his people had given them up. But there are non-lethal, continuing pressure situations that can be brought to bear to resolve human rights situations in a way that will result in much longer-term stability for a, a state and respect for human rights within that state. And that's where I think we need to shift our energy, our commitment, our attention, and away from this siren song that there's some silver bullet out there and if you just send in um, you know, the 82nd Airborne, you will have a good situation at the end of it. That, that works for some situations, but uh, probably almost never for human rights situations. I, I had a few more questions, Margaret, please. Yes.
3: Is it a system, a system, or a
1: well, I think, you know, it, it, we can't say it's a wild success. Um, maybe, you know, I, th- that one's really open to people's views. It's it pretty much, it's a stable situation divided into three parts. Could we have gotten a better situation if, uh, if there had been... You r- remember... Um, uh, Uh, the early attempts in Kosovo to use nonviolence, peaceful agitation, to get at least autonomy. And uh, members of the KLA got tired of waiting. But if we had given more support to that effort, and if we had made a similar effort in the other republics that actually had a better claim to peace, so I'm backing up. To the uh, original outbreak, if, if we could have fostered the same kind of situations that happened in Macedonia and Slovakia, uh, not Slovakia, in uh, uh, what's the, uh, Slovenia, Slovenia, I'm sorry, oh, my Slovakian and Slovenian students never like it when I make that mistake. Um, I think we would have had a better outcome today. But of course, there was uh, a Security Council authorization for NATO to be there. It wasn't really. NATO airstrikes did something. It was more the Croatian um, action on the ground, but that's also had this somewhat less than ideal outcome that Croatia has its piece of Bosnia, and so I don't know. Uh, I certainly don't put it in the win-win column. I don't think it's an exception to what I've been talking about.
4: Please.
2: I know. Yes. From on the ground perspective was that, you know, a clear and proper mandate would have allowed the force to potentially encourage the escalation of tensions. And from what you've said, you seem to have present kind of a free market version of micro level action on the um, part of the population. They would have, they would have helped themselves.
1: I wouldn't, I wouldn't compare that to the free market at all. Um, you know, I, I really think there's, uh, you know, um, we do know that people thought the UN peacekeepers were, were going to protect them. We do know that people went to General Dallaire and they went to other peacekeeping units and begged for protection. And we know that the protection was pulled out and they were left. So if they ha- didn't have those people to go to in the first place, what might they have done? At least, the, the very least, one fact we do know, we don't have to base on hypotheticals, is that they would not have been gathered in those same places where they were slaughtered. General Dallaire, um I think uh, he's given a report in his book that um, is, his, is, is the story that he needs to tell. About Rwanda, but it's a—it's a very um, well. I'll just say, I've been concerned about his objectivity. Yeah, I mean, it's a tragic situation that he was in. Um, I think I think if he had it to do over, um, he would have secured his own men's lives, which was his duty, and he would have stayed behind to save as many people as he could have and died in the effort. And I think a lot of his analysis of Rwanda is a terrible deep regret out of his own Catholic faith that I share in not sacrificing his life for the life of others. Um, so I, I tend to put his account of the matter, at least those kind of personal perceptive, under at least a question mark of how objective could he have been. Please.
2: Uh, you began your talk by steps in the evolution of a peace order. Your talk makes it clear that that we're far from having completed that peace order. Um, But yet it seems that your call to return to a more strict interpretation of the original charter closes off avenues for change within the body of international law that might be necessary to complete that peace order. So my question is how is it that we can complete the peace order without using force and without making modifications to the existing body of law uh, and using force to stand up to the people who would use violence
1: Yeah, you know, um, the World Summit outcome in 2005, the World Summit and its outcome document, followed all these years of negotiation and investigation by first Kofi Annan's high-level panel and then um, people in the United Nations. And the understanding was by the vast majority of leaders in the world who came together in New York that this is not outmoded, it's not outdated. These are the principles that we have failed, that we have not yet achieved. We've we've had some brilliant success for which the charter and the peace order does not get enough credit. The outlawing of conquest, the elimination of conquest from international affairs is a success of a normative ideal. And we could build on that and that was the view, you know, it's one of the saddest things in these discussions I've had on R2P and, uh, and debating it with the original authors and so on, that they, they are so angry about what happened at, in New York that they, the, the Security Council is in, and they say those, those third world countries wanted this. As if there's something wrong with being, you know, that the third world countries understand the problems of military intervention, they were concerned about it, and they find that the rules of the Charter against intervention are the right ones. That force should be lawful and permissible only for the most exigent circumstances, that's self-defense. And that other situations of violence in non-self-defense situations, such as violence against individuals within a society, human rights abuse, etc., the kind that's been going on in Sudan, We need to find non-lethal means that don't kill a lot of people in the attempt to save others. And there are such means. We have seen the success, as my colleagues at Notre Dame, George Lopez and David Courtright have done study after study of the success of sanctions. They have been able to work. And then there are um, uh, we we fail to use diplomacy and other more effective means. More carrots, more investment, more working with groups to get a positive outcome. We know that economic uh, well-being is one of the clear indicators of a future of peace for a country, except for the United States, I guess. Um, And using those kinds of methods are the right ones. If we have these legal principles as our guide and use those and continue to accept the binding nature and the power of law I think we can realize an ever-increasing regime of peace. So that's what I'd suggest. Please. I
2: guess just to follow up on the point about legal change and normative change (laughs) in the international order, um, I suppose one of the main thrusts behind that uh, controversial passage in the RPP document from from Ottawa um, is to shift the focus of international law from international law that protects the security of states, i.e. the outline of conquest to Council action against Iraq in a way towards human security, which I didn't hear mentioned in the talk, which I was surprised by. Um, just, so I guess the progress we see, or the progress that the, pro- pro- the proponents of that plan see in moving international forward, is to instead of valuing the lives of states, value the lives of individuals. And so I guess there's there's that sort of morbid push there. So how can a, how can an international reward accommodate human security while perhaps, preserving the
1: positive aspects of the post of You know what? My talk was only about human security. If we get a real, robust peace order, if we get peace, then we will, of course, have human security. War is the most devastating, the most destructive human activity for the enjoyment of human rights that there is. We have success on legal, with legal norms, <clears throat> against war, and we should build on that success, not detract from it. I understand the motivations behind the authors of R2P. They wanted to do something tangible, something real for human rights, but they were misguided. They had gotten this idea of, I I think it really comes out of the Gulf War. Here, the successful use of force, look what we were able to accomplish. Let's transfer that to these other categories. And I don't think they thought it through. There were not enough military, personnel on those committees to see that military force is not so adaptable to these other kinds of purposes. And then you always have to accept. I mean, I I had this terrible debate with Gareth Evans and said, you know, uh, the amount of force and the number of people who died as a result of the Kosovo conflict, and all he kept saying is, it was payback for Srebrenica. Well, you don't kill many innocent women and children in Serbia because of the tragedy and what Milosevic did in Srebrenica. Um, he needs to be arrested, as he was, and put on trial for that. But you don't deny the human security, the human lives of other people for that. So I'm just suggesting to you that war, and this is, this is not my opinion, this is the opinion of the 192 heads of state and government who are gathered in New York to reconfirm the UN Charter principles on this, to say that these are our contemporary principles. There are plenty of ways of changing the Charter. That's what the review was about, in case we needed this. And the collective decision-making, the normative and practical and legal analysis of our states that are our representatives in the international community, in addition to... uh, And there were some disappointed NGOs, but uh, most of us were very happy... And we think that the way forward for human security lies through building up a norm of peace, not tearing it down oh okay, thank you, yeah I my and i 'll get to Bob. Um, wonderful questions. I'm going to try to make a, a combined and limited an- answer. How can we do this? I think that's you know sum up. How can we get back to supporting the the, the peace effort? This the whole idea, this attractive idea, that's really sunk in um, in the United States of humanitarian intervention, and I think Western Europe as well. Though they weren't really planning on doing the intervening, they were going to. We were going to do it, right? Um, the uh, uh, I think we have to counter that with a correct idea and, and as well as an attractive idea. Um, this, th- I think this whole concept, I mean, it's, you know, Gareth Evans will tell you he's so proud of this that within such a short time, this took this whole concept, R2P, you know, you can just mention that and people know what you're talking about. It just so quickly got around. Um, so, you know, let's have R2P2. Responsibility to peace. We have to have another attractive idea that has a much better way forward. Um, you know, I, I, that's part of the reason I wrote this book, The Power and Purpose of International Law, because I think the attractive is the way forward is in this kind of work, in, in uh, once again countering the ideas that denigrate international law, denigrate the United Nations, and making the case again the clear and attractive case that if you are concerned about human rights, you need to be concerned about the human right to peace. So that's uh, what I'm suggesting, and I'm, I'm suggesting that all of you join me in this, that you all take up the work and do the... Um, there's, the there's the information. on getting the book. Um, I thank Jeffrey for his plug. Um, as a scholar, that's my best idea. Now, I have to tell you I'm a little frustrated because... Gary Bass's book gets reviewed on NPR. His pro-intervention book, which has all these examples from before the adoption of the UN Charter, and he just he has a new, uh, there's a very positive review by Christopher Hitchens called The Case for Humanitarian Intervention. So it's going to be a big job, but I think we have to do it. We owe it to future generations. Um, and I think we have to start, the United States is going to be the place to, really make that case and really turn it around. It's going, one thing that we have sadly in our favor going for us now is that we have come down so far in the world. This idea that the United States is the exceptional nation, we are the superior power, we can decide when we're gonna intervene, change governments, spread democracy, punish um, uh, dictators that we don't like. I don't, I don't think any future government for the foreseeable future is going to think that we are free free to do that. We might now begin to think, yes, a robust norm of peace would be a good thing to have when discussing with the Russians their plans in the near abroad. Having a really robust norm of peace might be a really good thing to have when we're facing the Chinese as they continue to build their military might. We're just in a position where all these ideas of international law might just become attractive and exciting to our leaders. So I, I, I challenge everyone to make the case. Bob.
4: Could I turn your attention to the American intervention in Afghanistan? I know it wasn't justified on humanitarian grounds, but does it fit with your understanding of uh, an appropriate application?
1: Yes, and I have an article published in 2001 saying that it was. Well, I guess it came out in 2002. At least the uh, it was plainly within the terms of the Charter. Article 2.4.51, we had suffered an armed attack for which uh, there was evidence on October 7th when we joined with the British in using force. Um, that the Taliban, the de facto government of Afghanistan, had played a significant role to become a responsible party for that use of force so that we could uh, use force in self-defense. In my view, the problem in Afghanistan became one of proportionality. Rather than using force in strict self-defense and eliminating the offensive capability of both al-Qaeda and the Taliban, We changed the entire government. It's very interesting, uh, and we did it in coalition with the Northern Alliance, um, and and now we're reaping the whirlwind for that disproportionate extensive use of force. Colin Powell had actually promised Musharraf that we were not going to go into Kabul. We were not going to take down the government and leave a political vacuum there. But Rumsfeld overrode, and it was his decision. He gave the green light to the Northern Alliance to go into Kabul. If we had eliminated the uh, the camps and if we had uh, degraded the Taliban's military capacity, but not removed them from power, and then started this patient but inevitable, you know, but the more likely successful route of uh, trying to transform that regime without military force, I think we'd be looking at a better situation today. But probably Margaret will tell me more. Okay.
4: Yes, I think it's, in addition to the self-defense, it was the United Nations Security Council also approved. No, uh,
1: I, I'm sorry. They, these, let's, it's, it's, I think it's important. The U.S. didn't actually want an authorization because we didn't want the authorization to be withdrawn. I mean, we're facing this problem right now in Iraq, right? There's a Security Council resolution, and uh, it's going to end. And then the U.S.'s position in Iraq is very questionable on a legal basis, and we're very worried about that but uh, we didn't want an actual resolution of authorization. All we have from the Security Council is a resolution saying that the 9-11 attacks could give rise to the right of self-defense under Article 51, but that doesn't remove any of the other elements of a lawful self-defense. People have misinterpreted what that Security Council resolution says. Most importantly, it does not say that we could attack just al-Qaeda, Anywhere in the world, for example, the Bush administration has tried to make that argument to underpin its global war on terror. That's plainly an exaggeration, not at all what's in that resolution. The resolution says only that the 9-11 attacks could give rise. Well, there are other elements, as I've explained, to self-defense, including that you can take your self-defensive actions only against the perpetrator of the unlawful attack. And that is, uh, and, and have a right to do it on the territory well if it's al qaeda and we're taking the response on their on the territory of afghanistan afghanistan had better be involved some way legally responsibly or we can't take that self defense they were we did we did too much and then we weren't doing enough and now we're in a bad situation but there's nothing in that resolution that authorized it and there's certainly nothing that authorized a worldwide war against members of al qaeda now we got margaret Yes.
3: Yeah. Um, the, that was an important part, I think, of our moral high ground uh, tactics at that point, and also, to some extent, explains the scope of what we tried to do. Where I would argue with you is whether it was a viable government. Uh, uh, I,
1: I, back to I've, I've backed off um, some from the more robust self-defense argument that I made because, the, 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 at the time, the facts supported that, but. We now know that the British—they are the ones who came up with the white paper about the links between Al Qaeda and the Taliban—and we now know that there's not much as much good evidence. And your point is well taken. So, if if they're just a weak government, the U.S. can um, certainly—well, this this, this—sorry, go ahead. Sure.
3: Yes. Up the clean up the began, then yes, that's that's absolutely true.
1: Let me um, com- uh, agree with you on your point about failed states, but the-, the way to help failed states is not the way we've been doing it in Somalia, which just keeps leading to more failure. I mean, the Ethiopians are just not the people to force a new government that's going to be successful into Somalia. I mean, this is, you know, this doesn't make much sense for for, for many, any of our goals there, um, and it probably would have been the same in Afghanistan, but the, to have done more for Afghanistan prior, uh, madness. Sanctions, you know, this is another one of the great myths that's around that I feel like I spend all my time trying to, uh, you know, uh, respond to myths about international law. Uh, of course, we now know after the invasion began and we found the warehouses full of food that this, that the, the terrible toll on the civilian population in Iraq was manipulated by Saddam Hussein, and why the reporters and the media were, you know, accepting that the oil for food program was working. And, of course, that's been smeared by the Bush administration, and, and Kofi Annan smeared falsely. Um, but the, uh, the, we now, of course, use sanctions that are called targeted sanctions. They're aimed at the leadership. They're not aimed at the general population. In the case of uh, Iraq, I had always advocated Um, what we were trying to keep out were uh, inputs to sophisticated weapons. And, of course, we did that really well. And I've never understood why our entire military effort at interdiction um, to support the sanctions on keeping inputs to weapons wasn't understood and why there was so much confusion about whether Saddam Hussein had weapons or didn't have weapons. I mean, you had to say that the entire U.S. military effort to enforce the sanctions was a failure. And how, I just never thought that was likely. And I could, I was, I've been until now in a quandary about why they thought uh, the sanctions weren't working on the weapons. But we don't do those kinds of massive sanctions regimes anymore. The regimes, the sanctions on Sudan, for example, are very targeted. It's, it's no fly asset control. Now we have a new problem on asset control um, on, uh, against terrorists, thanks to the European Court of Justice, but we don't have time for that one. It's so a new... No, no time for anything except for peace
3: in our time. Oh,
1: wrong. thanks for the great questions. Really appreciate it. Where's Amy?
3: Hi, Amy. How are you?